In September of 2018, the remarkably popular, ideologically progressive United States Senator Bernie Sanders partnered with a House representative from California named Ro Khanna to introduce the Stop Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies Act, which hilariously and very intentionally acronyms down into the Stop Bezos Act. And that bit of legal naming shade was thrown because this act is intended to target corporations like Amazon, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, alongside others like Walmart and American Airlines, who are becoming notorious for paying their employees non-living wages. In other words, these are companies that don't pay their employees enough for those workers to be able to afford food and shelter and health care and other necessities, which then leaves them at least partially dependent on government welfare programs to survive. And again, that's despite their being employed full-time by these massive and massively profitable corporations. The Stop Bezos Act would enact a new tax on large corporations, which is defined as those which employ more than 500 people. And that includes part-time and freelance gig workers as well. So ride-sharing companies and Airbnb and companies like that, which have massive workforces made up of people who are not officially working for the company, according to current legal definitions of employment. This act would make it so that every dollar the government pays out for those employees in welfare programs, and that includes programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, which is the modern version of food stamps, school lunch programs, Medicaid, and Section 8 housing programs. For each dollar the government spends on these programs for the employees of these companies, those corporations would be taxed for that exact same amount, dollar for dollar. The ostensible goal here would be to stop or at least limit what some have called corporate welfare. Basically, corporations figuring out ways to manipulate the system so that they walk away with more profits, while the American taxpayer holds the bag and foots the bill for their business models. Tax dollars pay for these welfare programs, and these programs are what allow these corporations to pay such ridiculously low wages to their employees while still remaining competitive in the hiring market. They can get away with it, in other words, because people know that they will still be able to survive, even working for such meager pay, because the government is there to fill in the gaps of what they're able to earn. Now, this isn't the first time legislation like this has been introduced. It's just the first time such legislation has had the star power that Bernie brings to bear behind it. It's also the first time, it should be noted, that such an act has had such a combative and newsworthy acronym for a label, which doesn't hurt. Especially if you don't expect the piece of legislation to actually become law, but are instead trying to shine a spotlight on a problem that you think should be addressed somehow. And possibly, and this is reportedly a very real possibility in the case of Senator Sanders, if you're trying to test the public's temperature when it comes to a potential platform for a 2020 presidential run. What I want to talk about today is a term I mentioned just a moment ago, corporate welfare. 
and more specifically, a few recent instances of what many experts are calling corporate welfare, and how this long-used, incredibly popular means of shifting government money over to corporations, ostensibly for the benefit of all, but perhaps mostly or entirely for the benefit of just some, is maybe beginning to backfire on those who have traditionally had the most to gain from it. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. A government subsidy, sometimes called a government incentive, is a type of monetary support or other type of benefit granted by the government to a business, individual, or organization, like a nonprofit, for instance. These subsidies can come in the form of tax breaks, low interest or no interest loans, rebates or discounts on rent, legal incentives, or even just straight up cash deposits. The government paying a group or individual to do a thing that the government, for whatever reason, wants that group or individual to do. Some government subsidies are legal and popular, others are legal and wildly unpopular, and thus sometimes hidden from the voting public as much as is possible to make sure this unpopular but potentially, through some lenses at least, important decision doesn't come back to haunt the politicians who made it happen come election season. Other subsidies are off the books, illegal, or technically sort of legal, but they exist in a legal gray area. Subsidizing farms here in the United States is a type of handout from the government to certain farmers to keep them farming or just maintaining farmland, the capacity to farm, even when they are getting paid to do essentially nothing or to even, in some cases, destroy the output of their farm. And this is a legal type of subsidy that is popular with some and unpopular with others. And even though it's a setup that can seem nonsensical to a lot of us, why would you pay a bunch of people with a bunch of land to just sit on that land and do nothing with it or to trash whatever they grow for a few seasons or a few years? But there are typically economic rationales for these sorts of decisions, even if they are not rationales that we would all agree with or that would make sense under any other sort of economic system. That same sort of handout to an individual who is related to the politician who ordered the subsidy, perhaps granting tax benefits to the receiving individual's business, let's say, and that individual is the politician's son-in-law or sister or father or whatever, that can be superficially legal-seeming, but actually be an example of what's called cronyism, handing out rewards and benefits to friends and family and supporters once you get into a position of power. And that is a big no-no. Now, this is something that happens a lot, but which often floats past regulators, either because they are looking elsewhere at bigger problems, or because it's in their own political, professional, or financial best interest to look past them. But when cronyism is noticed by someone who can do something about it, a regulator or the press, for instance, and it can be proved that that's what's going on, then the folks engaged in it tend to get in trouble. It's almost always not legal, even when those involved come up with clever ways to obscure their giving of government money to their friends and family. And in some cases, even when it is a legit transfer of resources, but because the potential is there that this might be corrupt, that this might have been a decision that was slanted in some way by that relationship, even in those cases, it can still be legally dubious territory. Recently, 
there have been a few high-profile examples of legal but increasingly unpopular government subsidies in the news. In these particular circumstances, the money and other benefits are going to corporations that don't seem to need them. And the ostensible benefits for the government and locals whose money is being paid to these corporations do not seem as worthwhile as they may once have seemed, even just a few years ago. The article I want to start with today comes from Vox, and it's entitled, New Yorkers Condemn Bezos at an Anti-Amazon HQ2 Rally in Queens. To understand this article, and even that headline, we will need to first get into what Amazon's HQ2 is, how what it is differs from what it was supposed to be, and how a bizarre, reality show-esque corporate expansionist adventure led to massive government subsidy offerings, or corporate welfare offerings, if you're against those subsidies, and resulted in, at times, somewhat embarrassing shifts of authority from government to corporation. Traditional leaders of both wealthy cities and those with crumbling infrastructure and insufficient resources all kowtowing and offering to hand over what they have to one of the largest companies in the world owned by the wealthiest man who has ever lived. On September 7th of 2017, Amazon announced that it was planning to build a second headquarters. Its first, and currently only, headquarters is famously located in Seattle, and the economic surge the city experienced over the past decade or so made this announcement that Amazon was looking to set up another similar campus in another location a tantalizing prize, especially for local politicians wanting to increase the number of high-paying jobs and overall investment potential in their region. Amazon decided to open up the process of figuring out where to start building what became known as HQ2, their second gravity well of economic power. And as part of that process, they had localities essentially bid, had them put together an outline of what they had to offer Amazon, and said that they were willing to consider any location that met a half-dozen core requirements, including having a metropolitan area with a population of over 1 million people, being located within 30 miles of the population center, being within 45 minutes of an international airport, having a suitable plot of available land located one to three miles from major highways and arterial roads, having available access to mass transit routes, and having up to 8 million square feet, which is about 740,000 square meters, available for potential future expansion alongside whatever they end up building on initially. There was also a list of secondary preferences that were not deal-breakers, if not available, but it was heavily implied that they would be feathers in the cap of regions that had at least some of these things to offer, alongside those core requirements. This secondary list included things like proximity to major universities, high-density urban districts, and airports with direct flights to Seattle, New York City, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. The deadline for initial submissions was October 19, 2017, and 238 proposals were received by Amazon. And among them were proposals from cities and regions from 54 states, provinces, districts, and territories. And this included areas in Canada, not just the United States. In January of 2018, Amazon announced its list of finalists, of which there were only 20, 
and these finalists were Atlanta, Austin, Boston, Chicago, Columbus, Dallas, Denver, Indianapolis, Los Angeles, Miami, Montgomery County, Maryland, Nashville, Newark, New York City, Northern Virginia, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Raleigh, Toronto, and Washington, D.C. On November 13th, 2018, Amazon announced that they had selected two locations instead of just one for their new headquarters. Each of these locations would host half of their HQ2 campus, and the winners were Long Island City in Queens, which is in New York City, and a part of Northern Virginia that includes Crystal City, Pentagon City, and Potomac Yard. So basically the Washington, D.C. area and a portion of that area, which will be, as a consequence of this process, officially renamed National Landing. So this cluster of small places was not previously clustered, but now it is. And now it has a name because of Amazon's selection process. It was announced that downtown Nashville, Tennessee would be the new, quote, center of excellence, unquote, for Amazon's operations business, which is not the same as a new headquarters, but it was announced that this will add 5,000 new jobs to the region. And those jobs... That's a big part of the prize here for these locations. The theory goes that if Amazon comes to town, chances are you will see thousands, maybe ten thousands, of new, high-paying jobs in the area. The initial figure that they presented when unveiling this competition, in fact, was 50,000 jobs created by the HQ2 campus alone. That means new occupational opportunities for locals, and it'll also attract new people, new white-collar, six-figure-earning, primarily younger, but also middle-aged, educated, and spendy tech-world people into these areas. So not only do you get to tax those people on the income that they earn, but also on what they spend, which means more money flowing into local restaurants and yoga studios and apartment buildings, and, of course, being able to tax those transactions as well. This also fluffs up overall job numbers, which is great for the economy, at least in theory, and very good for the folks in charge of that economy. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And all of that doesn't even include the secondary and tertiary consequences that could happen alongside those direct consequences. The prestige that comes with having a company the size and scope of Amazon in your city is a big deal. That could attract other companies because of your reputation, because of what it implies about your city. And because, in some cases, these other companies will want to be where the action is. And if Amazon's moving in, stuff is happening there, or so it's assumed. Having such an employer in the area could also stave off what's often called brain drain, where young people get educated, just like they always have, but instead of sticking around or coming home after getting their degree somewhere as they would have back in the mid-20th century, to work or start up a business where they grew up. Instead, they just leave forever, which over time can lead to, or at least can be associated with, a surge in low-wage, low-economic potential jobs, rather than career paths that make upwardly mobile people stop and take stock and stick around and, again, earn and spend locally so that they can be taxed, which in turn leads to more money that the city has to spend on things like schools and roads and so on. So that's the implicit incentive here for the locations doing the bidding. 50,000 high-paying jobs, gobs of money spent by Amazon to build their facilities, and a lot of valuable ripples that stem from having that sort of business operating at that scale in your neck of the woods. 
But this process involved bidding, not just putting the name of your city on a list, but also sweetening the deal, which very often included generous government subsidies. And these subsidies, they are a big part of why the New Yorkers in that story were at that rally. There are a lot of arguments against this sort of bachelor TV show style competition, giving a rose to the various cities and so on, when it comes to wooing potential future corporate residents. But the most obvious for a lot of commentators in this space have been the giveaways that Amazon will be receiving and the question of whether or not those giveaways should have been offered in the first place, and whether or not they will actually ever be paid back to the city through those assumed benefits of harboring HQ2 that everybody was so keen to try to win. Some really solid assessments from different angles of the specific arrangements for each of these locations, down to the most granular bits and pieces, have been published elsewhere, and I will link to some of my favorites of those in the show notes. But the Vox article about the rallies provides a pretty good outline of what was promised and how those promises came to be. Before touring the finalist locations, Amazon required that all involved elected officials sign non-disclosure agreements so they couldn't reveal the details of their negotiations with the company. During the process, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio claimed on the record that luring Amazon to the area would not cost the city a cent. But it later turned out that he offered them, in private, without any public input, $1.3 billion in tax breaks, alongside the $1.5 billion Amazon's receiving from the state of New York separately. The public and elected officials in the city council and state legislature had no idea this was going on, and they had no input in the negotiations. Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio set it all up, and then it was so democratic process be damned. Alongside the monetary incentives, and this is what adds insult to injury for some, these two politicians offered Amazon special privileges that would allow them to avoid certain land use review processes, get a soft touch from local regulators, and even to sidestep a 70s-era regulation that limits the use and construction of rooftop helipads in New York City. Goldman Sachs still has a helipad on their building, but they stopped using it years ago, and no one else has been allowed to build a new one in a very long time. And that tradition from the 70s was reinforced by smaller measures here and there post 9-11. So it's a security issue, but it's also kind of just a quality of life issue for the folks living and working in the area to not have helicopters buzzing in and around the buildings at all hours. Amazon, though, will get to build its helipad, if not right in the middle of the HQ2 building site somewhere nearby. And that's just one of the multiple ultra-specific Amazon-favoring line items in their agreement with the city. So part of the issue here is the money. A lot of taxpayer dollars will be transferred to Amazon without input from the public or other elected officials. And there are a lot of plum additions mixed into these contracts that were sorted out under the provisions of non-disclosures, through which a private company got a bunch of powerful public officials to sign away their ability to talk with their constituents about what they were giving up, resources that belonged to the local governments that were being promised to a major multinational corporation. And this is true of both locations, in Queens and in National Landing, which, again, Amazon was able to rename as part of their deal with the local officials. Amazon got money, 
the previously mentioned billions in New York, nearly 600 million in Virginia, and over 100 million in Nashville. Each location has different provisions attached to that money, most of them job creation related, but a great deal of that money will be transferred regardless, alongside the additional benefits in all three locations, including the avoidance or softening of local laws and regulations that no, or in some cases very few, other companies or entities can receive. But there's also the bait-and-switch issue here, which has led to some anger, even amongst the people who really wanted Amazon's HQ2 to be built in their locality, and who truly believed the benefits would be worth the initial local investment. Back when he first announced their corporate intentions, Bezos said that the second headquarters would be, quote, a full equal, end quote, to Amazon's Seattle headquarters. But after those NDAs were signed, Amazon apparently rethought everything and decided instead to split up the 50,000 jobs they were teasing and to divvy them out between New York and Virginia. Amazon also may have been playing a bit of a trick on these locations that put in bids to be the future site of HQ2 all along, as there were a lot of indications ahead of time that they were planning to choose New York and either DC or Dallas before the bidding game started. And there's a chance that this whole process, this whole little reality show contestant game that they put together was actually an effort to see how much they could get in terms of money and special treatment from the various localities that decided to play. That means, quite possibly, that by holding this kind of competition, they were able to net several billion taxpayer dollars and some sweetheart deals with the local government and regulators, which could pay serious dividends later on, that they otherwise would not have received. Not a bad investment, all told, for a little over a year's effort, and which still allowed them to get what they wanted all along though revelations of this potentiality certainly has not done much to endear them to these areas or to the public, which I will talk more about in a bit. When this whole rigmarole was first announced, there was excitement and speculation and anticipation by just about everyone. Now, however, that the whole story has come out, and now that we know more about the details and how they were negotiated, and understand that maybe Amazon was just throwing its weight around, taking advantage of our system, draining the government's coffers for personal gain because they could, making some of these areas, these representatives and people, make fools of themselves, made them dance for the chance to earn a buck. Since all of that has become more evident, the cheering has died down, and in some places, including the locations of the supposed winners, New York and Virginia, that sense of victory has been replaced with a lot of boos and angry chanting and anti-Amazon, anti-Jeff Bezos rallies and petitions. Let's pause for a moment with the Amazon story and deviate from the economic and political hotbeds of New York and the D.C. metro area and refocus for a few minutes on Wisconsin, more specifically on southeast Wisconsin, Racine County, where the electronics manufacturer Foxconn has announced it's intending to build a new factory, which will cost about $10 billion to build and will employ about 13,000 workers, who will make an average of about $53,000 each year. To lure Foxconn to the area, Wisconsin officials offered the company at least $3 billion in tax breaks and credits, which is more than the total of all the straight-up monetary benefits that Amazon will be earning from New York, Virginia, and Tennessee combined. 
So a little minor drama that has emerged post-HQ2 Winter City announcement is that Wisconsin is experiencing some buyer's remorse, having offered a whole lot for what looks like a comparative pittance. Amazon's jobs, on average, will pay more than Foxconn's, and those higher-paying jobs were bought alongside Amazon's far better overall reputation for a far smaller price. Wisconsinites began to feel like they had gotten a pretty raw deal. And let's be clear, Racine County is paying a lot here, with another $764 million or more added onto those tax breaks and credits to upgrade infrastructure and add other perks for Foxconn and the area where the factory is being built. And those are combined with still other benefits with a price tag that some estimates set at around $4.8 billion in total, all in taxpayer dollars and all for the benefit of Foxconn. And again, that payout was all to try to convince them to build this factory in this particular county. Additionally, because of former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's efforts to effectively cut the state's corporate income tax to zero in 2011, the subsidies Foxconn was offered would not, in practice, be a tax write-off at all, but basically just billions of dollars paid to the company by income taxes that would be paid by Foxconn employees and other locals. And lacking corporate income tax revenue, the estimated payback date for $4.8 billion in subsidies was thought to be, in the words of one economist, quote, not 20 years, not 42 years, but somewhere between hundreds of years and never, end quote. Take note that I said former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Walker was defeated at the polls in November of 2018, and it's thought that his handling of the Foxconn debacle paying so much for so relatively little played a role in his defeat. The benefits of this type of payout, this type of lure for locals, in the eyes of many economic, city development, and even business experts, are questionable. In terms of the tax money paid out to corporations, in terms of the additional burdens put on local infrastructure, the negative consequences of gentrification that tend to be amplified when new, highly paid people are mixed in with a generally less well-off, less well-paid population. In terms of recouping the money paid, in terms of reputation and other soft benefits, this type of deal is usually considered to be either a wash or a net loss for the area. The theory of why this should work kind of makes sense if you look at it superficially. I mean, more relatively high-quality, high-paying jobs, that seems like a pretty good thing. But once you start to run the numbers, and once externalities and secondary consequences are worked into the math, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that this sort of scheme is mostly beneficial for the corporation or other entity that's receiving the benefits. Amazon makes out like a bandit, and the places where Amazon sets up shop have some new winners and some new losers, but overall, more of the latter than the former. There is a redistribution of wealth in the area, and it's mostly upward, mostly to fewer people, and most of all, to Amazon. One other traditional winner when it comes to this type of deal, though, in the cities where these sorts of political and business courtship rituals take place are the incumbent politicians that set them up. These deals might not be good for most locals if you actually do the math, but they can be very good for the mayor, for the governor, whoever set up the deal, and can then claim 
again, superficially, because they can safely assume that most people will not fact-check their claims, they can say that they brought more jobs and wealth to the area, which is often technically true, but not in the sense that most people would assume, and not in a way that's usually good for the average local. In this case, though, as I mentioned, it's thought that Scott Walker, who had been in office from 2011 until 2018, lost in part because of his courting a Foxconn. And back in New York and Virginia, there are similar unhappy rumblings as locals find out the details of these plans and begin to question the loyalties of those making the deals. What incentives are in place causing these people to behave in this way? Who do these politicians really work for? The citizenry or these corporate oligarchs? Those are the questions that are being asked, rightly or wrongly. Part of the outrage here is that there is a widespread perception that there never seems to be enough money in these types of places to upgrade schools, to pay for health care, to help low-income students pay for university. But then, out of nowhere, these billions of dollars just seem to manifest out of thin air as soon as Amazon asks for a handout. Amazon, which, again, is run by the world's wealthiest man, who said back in May, during an interview, that he has so much money, he doesn't know how to spend it fast enough. From that interview, quote, The only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That's basically it. End quote. He was being asked what he's doing with the, at the time, estimated $131 billion fortune that he was worth, and he explained that he was liquidating a billion dollars a year just to fund his private spaceflight company, Blue Origin. And let's set aside the benefits of spaceflight and private spaceflight and private spaceflight being funded by wealthy people who can afford the incredibly high costs associated with that industry for just a moment. I happen to think that this is a great use of money, personally, but in the context of what's happening in the world, of the increasing economic inequality of his company, Amazon in particular, hiring gobs of people and not paying them a living wage, and saying that they don't have to because the government will pay them welfare to supplement their meager full-time income, and then going on the record bragging that he essentially does not know of any other way to spend all that money that he has fast enough. And so he's essentially putting it in a rocket ship and sending it into space. That's not a good look, no matter what your perception of spaceflight and things of that nature. Now, that's a dramatic oversimplification of the situation, but it's also a dominant narrative of what's happening here, and perhaps an understandable one, especially because of some of the other conversations that have been happening alongside this one. Consider that... It's been posited by some economists and armchair economists that instead of giving billions of dollars to a company like Amazon, which clearly doesn't need it, these governments could spend money on buying up and canceling student debt in their area. An action that has been associated with decreased unemployment rates, an increased rate of job creation, and increased amounts of money being circulated through the local economy, rather than having that same money leave the local economy to be put in the pockets of debt owners who usually live elsewhere. These governments could also just repair their crumbling infrastructure, improve the quality of local schools, things like that. 
a relatively small city in Tennessee called Chattanooga, famously invested heavily in local internet infrastructure and consequently has some of the fastest, most reliable speeds in the country. That one piece of infrastructure is responsible for drawing new business, new workers, and new students to the area. And there's data to show that the same is often true for other infrastructural investments, for all the reasons that you can imagine. I mean, who, after all, would not prefer all other things being equal to move their family to an area with high-quality schools? Or given the option, wouldn't want to move to a place that has fewer food deserts, that has walkable parks and clean, reliable mass transit and cheap and abundant internet access citywide. The big picture argument from this side of things is that the same money could be spent on different stuff and could achieve a lot of the same outcomes. You want new high-paying jobs? Cool. Invest in schools and roads and other infrastructure. Instead of handing that money to Amazon or another similar company, you could invest it, get the same outcomes, and also, as a byproduct, increase the overall quality of life for residents, rather than increasing the quality of life for Jeff Bezos, and potentially local politicians who will have one more talking point over their potential competitors in the next election cycle. All that said... I definitely don't want to imply here that we have enough data to say with certainty that the pros do not outweigh the cons when a behemoth like Amazon saunters into town and sets up shop. It's possible that the most important metrics are difficult to measure or largely invisible, except in their anecdotal effects. And for a lot of people, people who earn $200,000 a year working for Amazon, for instance, the benefits of such a move can be pretty solid, especially when tech and other industry jobs are not abundant locally, and high-paying jobs in general are scarce in the region. This is not an indictment of corporations or subsidies or Amazon or Foxconn or even politicians overall. We do seem to be at a moment, though, where the details are beginning to matter more and where handshake deals between powerful people, spending resources that should be held in the public trust and spent for the public good to improve the lives of the public, are instead used to enrich, in different ways, those making the deals. That's beginning to be better understood and becoming more likely to sway opinion and voting habits. It's possible to bias ourselves against politicians and wealthy CEOs and to see deviousness where actually there is a legitimate win-win-win scenario, though. So it's a good idea to take each situation on a case-by-case basis and to weigh the facts. It's possible that these two instances that I mentioned and other similar-seeming scenarios could, in fact, be a net gain for just about everyone. We don't want to accidentally flatten the complexities of these sorts of things to create villains where there are no villains to see a crowd of losers when really it's just a group of winners winning at different rates, in different ways, and in different quantities. But all of that assumes, of course, that there are publicly available facts to weigh, and people beyond those doing the handshaking who are empowered to do something about the situation if those numbers don't add up or don't add up to something that will be on net beneficial to those not running for re-election or looking to build themselves yet another private helipad or private space company. So making these deals more transparent is a good direction to aim for if we do, in fact, believe there's something to be gained. Those on the inside might want to move in this direction lest they be incorrectly labeled conniving and selfish, 
for something that they at least hopefully think might be in the public's best interest. And those of us on the outside should rally for information of absolutely any kind that might help us better understand the world and make good decisions any chance we get. This is also a good moment to test our personal perceptions of who we are and who is in charge, who is responsible for keeping the great big gears in motion all around us, all that clockwork that keeps things ticking, all those systems that we, in a lot of ways, take for granted. Now, I tried in this episode to avoid as much as possible talking about what Amazon does as a company, because this is mostly an episode about government subsidies, but inextricable from any conversation about the conflicts and connections between government and enterprise is the conflict we can feel, sometimes, as individuals, between our roles as consumers and our roles as citizens. As a consumer, I find Amazon to be convenient and even at times empowering. I worry about their dominance in many different spaces, but I also benefit from that dominance, at least for now, in many different ways. As a citizen, I tend to think of Amazon as more of a threat, as it has used its position and power to wrangle more rights and special privileges from the state. Rights and privileges that are typically held by elected officials. And I worry about their increasing influence using their lobbyists, their political contributions, their ability to get elected officials to embarrass themselves publicly. New York Governor Como said that he would legally change his name to Amazon Como if Bezos asked him to in order to get the company to build their new campus in his state. And that kind of power over other powerful people worries me. It worries me because as a citizen, I prioritize the ability to influence the shape of my country, my government, through the democratic process, imperfect as it tends to be. And I worry, even though I cheer every time Amazon grants me a new capability, fresh access to a new market for the books that I write and sell, and the ability to purchase new useful things from all corners of the globe, Those benefits and those concerns coexist. They overlap each other in uncomfortable ways. Our own internal dichotomous natures are part of what makes these situations so difficult to accurately and completely parse. It's also what makes it so difficult for us to look at potential legislation like the Stop Bezos Act that I mentioned in the intro or the many under-the-table deals being forwarded by interested parties, both political and economic, without viewing them through a veil of heavy bias. And that bias can, strangely, warp our understanding in multiple directions simultaneously because of our complex natures and our own statuses as people straddling these two different worlds and sets of concerns. The TV series that I'd like to recommend today is, I believe, an Amazon exclusive, so it's a little bit timely for this episode, and it's called Patriot. And this show probably takes an episode or two to get into if you're not typically into very, very dry, dark humor. But it is very dry, it's very funny, hilariously funny, but it also is quite dark. And the premise is the main character is a spy for the U.S. government, and his handler is his father, who's a politician. And that protagonist, who is the spy, is also a little bit depressed, maybe experiencing some PTSD 
and he's still going through with a new mission, still trying to fulfill his responsibility, but he is also suffering from that depression, and as a consequence, engaging in some incredibly self-destructive behavior, and, somewhat hilariously, singing folk songs about his exploits with lyrics that are incredibly literal and specific. And as part of this mission, he has to infiltrate one of the most boring, but also kind of clubby industries in the world. And he is tasked with doing a whole lot of what he has to do in a part of the world that experiences essentially zero crime, which as a consequence kind of activates a really delightful cat and mouse game between him and local law enforcement. So this is a show that I enjoyed enough that I actually ended up watching the first season a second time, which I almost never do. And thankfully, just very recently, within the last month or so, as of the day I'm recording this, the second season was just released, and that is also very, very well done. So if you get the chance, if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. If not, I think it's available for a reasonable price on Amazon. Consider checking out the show Patriot. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. While there, you might consider signing up for my twice-monthly or so newsletter, which includes updates on what I'm up to along with an essay and other information. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find tour dates and ticket information for the tour that I'm currently on from September 2018 until September 2019 at becomingtour.com. And you can reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them, but it's just Colin Wright on Facebook, if that's your thing. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 